Lord, as we come to your word, we remember that your word is sufficient, it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is infallible, it is unassailable. It accomplishes everything that you desire for it to accomplish. And so we come as beggars who are hungry, as your children who are asking for a piece of bread. We ask that you would feed us and nourish our souls, strengthen us, and instill in us a deeper confidence in Christ, that we may be more like him in our daily lives for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 55. We'll be looking at Psalm 55 today, the first Sunday of every month. We study a psalm, and I think we probably have one more month in the psalms. Uh, When we finish our study in the Gospel according to John, we're going to be starting a study in 1st and 2nd Samuel. And when we do that, our first Sunday of the month will be a study in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that series will probably outlast the first and second Samuel series. So the idea is, yeah, someday we will come back to the Psalms uh, when we get through first and second Samuel and go back to a New Testament book and have to figure out what to preach from the Old Testament again. Because uh, I have loved the Psalms. I don't know about you guys, but this has been a study that has really blessed me. But I'll say this. There hasn't been a psalm that I have been tempted to skip until this one. This one hits a little bit close to home for me. And I I felt David's pain as I studied it this week. It's a psalm about dealing with betrayal. One of the most painful and, uh, and yet common things that we experience in life is betrayal. Uh, It's probably safe to say that everyone experiences at least some degree of betrayal uh, in in one way or another at some point in life. Probably more than once. Probably multiple times. And it's just unfortunately not as uncommon as it should be. It's It's not as uncommon as it should be for spouses, for example, to betray one another. Uh, I've known people who, uh, who worked at their jobs for 20 plus years and were only a year or two away from retirement with full benefits only for their employer to lay them off so that they would not have full benefits in their retirement. I'd say that's a form of betrayal. Um, a person in that situation definitely has a right to feel betrayed. Or maybe you've just had a friend who has betrayed you. Betrayal is indeed so common that I would say that uh, a person my age, and I'm kind of old, you guys know, uh, if a person's my age and they've never experienced betrayal, I would say you're either ignorant, uh, so you're unaware of it, or you are lying, or you are so detached and so far just removed from any human relationships or interactions that you can't be betrayed because you don't get close enough to anyone that they could betray you. No, the only way to ensure that you will never be betrayed is to live a life in total isolation from people and relationships. But friends, you and I both know that God has said that it is not 
good that man should be alone. God designed us to have relationships. And while it's true that a real relationship requires vulnerability, it's better to be vulnerable and to have human relationships than it is to be isolated and and broken off from people, closed off and not having any relationships at all. You can't escape it. If you're around people, even parents can betray people, can betray their kids. And so with that said, it's important that we know how to handle something like betrayal in a manner that honors the Lord and that does not stir us up to sin. Because the truth is that being betrayed, uh, the, the act of betrayal has a way of stirring up anger and strife within our flesh. And at that point, we're very prone to sin. If you get to the point where you are angry because somebody has sinned against you, you must be very careful that you don't sin against them. So to put it another way, we're extremely prone to sin when others have first sinned against us. We have to learn to deal with somebody sinning against us in a way that does not cause us to sin in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. Knowing that the Lord will take what man intended for evil and He will use it for our good. And that's the point of the psalm that we come to today. That God will take what man intends for evil against us and He will use it to bless us. Now, as we've studied the Psalms, we've seen that sometimes Psalms will be put together, clustered together, because they're related to one another in some way or another, and that is unquestionably the case with the Psalm that we come to today, Psalm 55, which is very closely related thematically to uh, Psalms 52 and 54. If you remember back in Psalm 52, uh, David wrote that psalm after being betrayed by a man named Doeg the, uh, the Edomite. Uh, in Psalm 54, David was betrayed again, this time by his own countrymen. The first time was a foreigner. Doeg was, was a foreigner. In Psalm 54, it was by his own countrymen. Uh, in fact, it was his own tribesmen, the people of Ziph. But here in Psalm 55, we'll see that David was not betrayed uh, by a foreigner or by a fellow countryman, but by someone that David would have counted as a close companion, a friend, uh, a close friend. Now, of course, scholars and, and theologians throughout the ages have done what scholars and theologians do. They try to figure out wh- where does this fit in David's story? Uh, who is this character who betrayed David that he's writing about? But none of the educated guesses that they have arrived at really accurately, completely fit Um, the description that David gives to this person in verses 13 and 14, where he refers to to him as my companion and my familiar friend with whom he had sweet fellowship. Uh, That's not somebody that's really described anywhere in 1st or 2nd Samuel or in 1st or 2nd Chronicles. So while we might be tempted to speculate on the identity of this person who betrayed David, uh, it's probably best just to conclude by saying, we don't know. 
We don't know. Uh, David's betrayal here, it might be uh, by somebody whose story and whose name isn't found anywhere in Scripture at all. In fact, I'd say that's probably the case. But one of the things that makes this particular psalm unique is that it's not just an anguish-filled lament like those other two were, like Psalms 52 and 54 were. And it's not just an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory prayer is praying for the, 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 the justice of God to be delivered to a person. It's both of those things. It, it's a lament. It's an imprecatory prayer. But it's also a psalm of the wisdom genre. And David certainly needed wisdom here because the person who betrayed him was apparently rallying a small mob of people to come and try to take David's life. And so David shows us a wise, uh, a healthy, and a God-honoring way to deal with betrayal in the words that he records in this psalm for us. As we begin the psalm, you can hear the anguish that David is feeling immediately in the opening stanza of this psalm. Let's look at Psalm 55, verses 1 to 8. It says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a maskil of David, which reminds us what? This is meant to be sung. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. One of the things that we can gather from this opening stanza is that David is already serving as Israel's king here at this point, which distinguishes it from Psalms 52 and 54. Uh, In those Psalms, he was betrayed by people while he was running for his life out in the wilderness from King Saul. But here we see David wishing that he could return to the wilderness, thinking, oh, my life would be so much easier if only I could go back to being in the wilderness where none of this stuff that's risen up recently can affect me. And let's just get straight to the application here. Isn't that how life often is? You would think that things would be going well for David at this point. You would think that he would be prospering and that he would be at peace as Israel's king. You would think that he would regularly be thanking the Lord that he's no longer out in the wilderness anymore, but now he actually has a bed to sleep on. He actually has a a, a roof over his head. He's safe while he sleeps. You would think all these things, but you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. Here we see him longing for a return to the wilderness. See, while he was in the wilderness, he surely would have thought that his troubles would be over by now. He surely thought that when God finally replaced Saul 
with David and put David on the throne of Israel, that all of his problems would just be gone and that life would be good and peaceful and there would be no more running for your life. What we see instead is that while the context is different, his problems are actually the same. He might not be in the wilderness anymore, but he's facing the same problems as the king of Israel that he did when he was running for his life from the former king of Israel. And we're often the same way if you think about it. We think that you know, if, if, if we just get a new job, Certain problems are just going to go away. They'll just solve themselves. If we just have a little bit more money, life is going to be so much easier. If we have more security, we'll, we'll be able to stop worrying. If we just get a new spouse, someone will finally start treating us right. That's the way people think. But is that how reality actually works? It never ever is. The list goes on and on of situations where we think, oh, if only. But then when you get that, you realize, oh, life was better before. My problems haven't gone away. What we'll discover is that trouble will always have a way of catching up with us and finding us. And in David's case, perhaps You know this by your experience as well. It seems that his earlier troubles were actually ordained by God for the purpose of preparing him for what he would face now as Israel's king. David couldn't run from his trouble. And friends, let me just put this in clear language for you. David couldn't run from his problems and neither can we. Neither can you. Sometimes it seems like the grass is greener on the other side. I get it. But the grass is going to be green wherever you water it. That's what they say. What I say is the grass might only be green because there's more manure over there. (laughs) Troubles are like an enemy that is faster than we are, that's smarter than we are, that's stronger than we are, and thus they stay one step ahead of us. So what are we supposed to do about them? We do what David did and what he models for us here. We take our troubles to the Lord in prayer. That's the first thing we do. It's not the last thing we do. It's not plan B. It's plan A. So he begins by pleading with God to hear his prayer, but to also respond to his prayer. Not to just hear it, but to do something about it. So he's not just vending. He doesn't only need God's ear. What he's asking for is God's strong arm as well. In other words, he is pleading with God to do more than to just hear Him and listen to Him. He's also asking God to take action. It seems as though David is feeling so distraught that he's actually at a point where he's wondering if God has turned his back on David, if if God has abandoned him. And maybe that's why he pleads with God to not hide himself from David's supplications. David is apparently facing greater trouble here as Israel's king than he did out in the wilderness. And the pain of the betrayal that he's dealing with is intense. Look at the strong language he uses in bringing his need for help to the Lord. He says that he is distracted. I actually prefer the NIV's translation here, distraught. Uh, That captures, I think, more the essence of the Hebrew word and, and what David is trying to say here. Although trials do have a way of distracting us, we don't think of being distracted in 
too, uh, too painful of a sense. It doesn't reflect anguish. He says he's in anguish in verse 4. He says he's feeling like the terrors of death have found him. Again in verse 4, he's so distraught, he's overwhelmed by fear and trembling in verse 5. And feeling horror again in verse 5. To be honest, there's no other place where we see David reach a point like the point that he has reached here in our text. We see him using terminology like this in other places to express what he's feeling, what, you know, what his emotions are that he's going through. But consider how bold he was in other times and situations. He wasn't ready to run for the hills in those times. But now, David is feeling like he would rather just run away, which is unique to this situation. We never see David talking like this, except here. So between the terminology that he uses and the fact that he expresses a desire to flee to the wilderness, not necessarily for safety, but for returning to a simpler way of life, these things, despite the, despite the fact that he, he talks about these things, he can't get away from his troubles. And so we get the sense that this is urgent business, it's serious. He's, he's not wasting any time with this prayer. He just goes straight to the point. He has begun by just pouring his heart out and being transparent with God. And by the way, how many of you know that that's the only way to come to God? Is to be transparent. You think he doesn't know why you're praying already? Of course he does. But that's not a reason to not pray. That's a reason to be transparent with our prayers. Open yourself up. Be real with Him. Tell Him what you're feeling. Go ahead, pour your heart out. So it's not reason to clam up or shut up with God. It's reason to open up with God. But we also need to remember this. God designed us to long for a place without troubles. That's what David is doing. God has designed us to long for a place where there are no more troubles and the thorns in the flesh that we accumulate through life and the thistles in the fields remind us that we're not going to find that place here. Not in this life. What a blessed thing it is to remember that this world is not our home. Our home, the place that we long for where troubles will be gone, that place is heaven. There's, there's perfect peace there because there are no troubles to speak of there. And there are no troubles to speak of there because there's no sin there. And if that doesn't make you hungry for heaven, I don't know what will. But what did Jesus promise us about this world? He said this in John 16.33. He said, In the world you will have tribulation or trouble, depending on your translation. But take courage. I have overcome the world, he said. That word tribulation, that means trouble. And not just a little bit of trouble, not just a minor thing, it means big trouble and plenty of it. But he tells us, take courage because he has overcome the world. He is sovereign over everything that takes place. This is his world. This is our Father's world. And with that much understood, his hands are the best place for us to place our cares and concerns in prayer. In the words of the hymn that we sang this morning, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. 
there will be trouble that we will face in life. That's true for every single Christian who has ever lived. And sometimes when we're facing these troubles, it might seem like the best option is to get out of there, to go someplace else. Now, sometimes the Lord will allow us to, and sometimes, especially if we're in a position that involves a God-ordained responsibility, sometimes He won't. He might not have much of a problem with you getting a new job, depending on what the job is, I suppose. But, but I guarantee you that He will take very, very strong issue with anyone getting the idea that you can just get a new and improved spouse. David could have just run for the wilderness. But his pain from losing and being betrayed by a close friend would have just run with him. And he would have just found new people to potentially betray him wherever he went. So what we must remember is that we can't get into the habit of running from our troubles because they will have a way of finding us one way or another, no matter where we go. In fact, running from them might even cause those problems to become bigger and stronger and more problematic for us. And so with that said, what we need to learn to do is to focus on how we handle betrayal or whatever kind of trouble we face. And the first solution isn't to run, it's to take our troubles to the Lord in prayer, just as David has done here in the first section of this psalm. But know this also, since it's not always possible to simply escape our problems, we have to resolve. We have to learn how to just resolve to persist. We have to persist. That's something that else that we see throughout this psalm, is that David goes to the Lord, and then he kind of reflects on himself. Then he goes back to the Lord. That's what we need to do too. Pray and persist in prayer. Now if it was hard, for example, to, to get, out of the, get out of the bed and, and face the day today, okay, that's alright. You know, Get through the day and we'll see how tomorrow goes. That's what it means to persist. Just one step at a time. Can you, can you get through one more day? Yes. Okay, well then don't worry about tomorrow because God will give us the grace to face tomorrow when tomorrow comes. And then you wake up tomorrow and give yourself the same assessment again. How, how's it going? If it doesn't go so well... How about the next day? How about the day after that? And so forth. That's something that we see David doing here. It's why the psalm ends up being so lengthy. He goes to the Lord several times here in prayer. So hasten to your place of refuge. That's what what David says he did. Where, Where is our place of refuge? It's in the presence of the Lord when we pray. So, pray. And persist in prayer. Pray and persist in prayer. Pray again and again and again. Persist. Repeat as often as you need to. And in the meantime, trust that the Lord is helping you to work through your troubles, whether they be betrayal or whatever. So having emptied his sorrows and troubled feelings before the Lord, David now turns his attention to what has happened as a result of his betrayal, the fact that there are wicked people stirring up trouble in the city. Let's continue in verses 9-11. to 
David writes, Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls. And iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. Now the worst place for the enemy to be is within the city gates. It's not outside the city gates, but inside the city gates. And that's the situation that David was facing. And so he paints a grim picture for us as he describes what is happening. He sees violence and strife, iniquity and mischief, oppression and deceit. And he kind of personifies these things. But why are these things found within the walls of the city? I mean, ultimately, in the the ultimate sense, we can say that they are present within the city because people are present within the city, uh, and those people are sinful. Uh, But rather than taking matters into his own hands, which David, as the king, had the authority to do, instead David prays for God to be the one to take action, asking that God confuse and divide their tongues. Now that language uh, refers us, it should, should stir up memories of another passage in Scripture. It, it's used, that language is used purposely to remind us, and, and God, as if God needs to be reminded, of what happens when sinful men conspire together and how God has thwarted those plans in the past. Uh, when sinful men got together and conspired to become like God by building uh, the Tower of Babel, God confused and divided them by causing them to begin speaking different languages. And in this way, their plans were thwarted. In this way, the people were divided from one another and unable to work together harmoniously to create a tower that would make them feel like they were equal to God. So we can certainly relate to what David was seeing as he sees all this violence and strife out in the streets of the city I mean, all you need to do is browse through news headlines these days, right? You see the same stuff. In 2020, there was almost constantly um, a violent presence among the wicked men in our streets of our nation. Uh, To add, as as I reflect on that time, to add to how sad I was to see uh, so much violence in the streets of our nation as they burned to the ground in um, mostly peaceful protests, uh, while people were looting and murdering, uh, there was also there were also some very prominent churches, uh, some very well-known pastors whose books we used to carry once upon a time uh, and put on our shelves that decided that they were not going to hold services on Sundays because of COVID, and yet they were quick to encourage their congregants to go out and join these protests on Sunday morning instead of going to service. And those weren't just protests as anyone with half an ounce of common sense knew they were riots it was revolting to see sinful pagans rioting and and looting it was exponentially more revolting to see some very prominent pastors encouraging their church members not to find a church where they could worship but to go out and to join hands with these pagans who were looting and murdering in the streets disgusting no, the, the answer to violence on the streets 
begins with understanding that the reason that such violence and such strife exists is because of sin. James writes in James 4.2, he says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's what those riots in 2020 were all about. It was right there. And we need to know this. We need to know that the streets in our nation will not improve with a different politician in office. They won't improve if a different political party gets the majority in the Senate. They won't improve by upping the presence of the police on the streets. No, the real solution involves addressing the moral deficiency that has overwhelmingly permeated our current culture. And how does that happen? How do we, how do we address the moral deficiency in our nation? Well, one option is just behavior modification. One option is, yeah, let's increase police presence. Let's get the right people in office. But ultimately, those are faulty solutions. It's like putting a, a, a small band-aid on a, on a gash. No, the answer is revival. Only revival. By, by the gospel being preached and the Holy Spirit using the preaching of the gospel to change hearts. That's what this nation needs. Changed hearts. And for the Holy Spirit to use the preaching of the gospel to draw lost sinners to Christ. Do seeing our country's streets filled with violence cause you to feel a sense of anguish? I think it probably should, at least in one sense. But if it does, you can understand how David felt to a degree. He, he continues now telling us about the anguish that he, that he has at what he sees in the streets of Jerusalem. Let's continue verses 12 to 14. He writes, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Now we get to the heart of the problem here that David's troubled by. The person who's rallying this mob of these wicked men in the streets into action against David was someone whom David considered to be a close and trustworthy friend, a companion, a confidant. And so David wasn't troubled by enemies in the past who you know, conspired and plotted against him, who attempted to take his life or overthrow his reign as king. He wasn't troubled by them. He'd endured how many battles and attempts at taking his life. But this wasn't an enemy. This was someone he had worshipped God beside. This was someone who appeared to be worthy of a deep trust. Losing friends is painful enough, but to lose a friend like this, by having them betray us and, and turn against us and rally people against us, and when that person is someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, we can understand why David is deeply, deeply grieved. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, 
quote, none are such real enemies as false friends, end quote. The solution, however, is not to just isolate yourself. The solution is not to push all of your friends away. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, but we don't see him pushing away and getting away from all the other disciples. No, the answer, the solution is simply this. To bring it to the Lord in prayer and to leave it in His hands, which is exactly what David does. Let's look at verse 15. He says, Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. Notice he doesn't say him. He says them. He's praying against the wicked men. Now now you might not be surprised that some people would have a problem with this prayer. It's an imprecatory prayer. A prayer for the destruction of an enemy. A prayer for justice to be served upon an enemy. But there are a couple things that we should observe and take note of for the person who objects to this type of prayer in response uh, to those who uh, take issue with any kind of imprecatory prayers. First of all, David was the man that God had specifically appointed, that God had specifically chosen to be the king of Israel. What is the just penalty for betraying and conspiring against the nation's king? It's death. Secondly, because this is a capital offense, an offense that's worthy of of death, David has the authority to do this himself. He has the authority to go out and arrest these men, have them arrested, and put to death publicly. David has the authority to do that, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he puts this request in the hands of God. David was a good king, and there is no good king that desires to put any of his citizens to death. Third, David knows that God is a perfectly just God. In other words, he never does what is wrong. He never misunderstands. He always, always does what is just. He always does what is righteous and good. And so for David to put this in God's hands is to get himself, to get David out of the way and just to put this request in a safe place. If killing these men, if taking their lives would be unjust, David knows God wouldn't do it. And so David isn't asking for injustice here. He's asking for perfect justice, and maybe he was worried about his ability to render justice because his emotions in this circumstance were so strong. He doesn't want to be governed by his emotions. Good kings, good leaders aren't. Fourth, once again, David uses language that should remind us of another time that God acted in judgment to thwart the evil plans of sinful men. Uh, There's a subtle reference here to the destruction of a man named Korah and his followers in the book of Numbers. Uh, They had uh, been punished by God for standing against Uh, against Moses, plotting against Moses. Uh, Moses said to those who stood against him and Aaron in Numbers 16.11, he says, therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. He doesn't say you're, you're gathered to conspire against me and Aaron. 
he says, you're doing it against the Lord. It looked like they were gathered together against Moses and Aaron, but because God had specifically chosen Moses and Aaron to lead the people, these men, these sinful men who were rallying against them, were really rallying against God Himself. And the same thing is happening here in David's situation. God's just judgment against Korah and his followers is found in Numbers 16, verses 30-33. to Moses says to them, If the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And then we read in the verses that follow, 31-33, to As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Was that unjust? Absolutely not. Because God did it, and God is never unjust. He is always good. He is always righteous. He always does the right thing. He never does the wrong thing because by virtue of who He is. He's He's holy. He's righteous. David wants justice, just like Moses. And so he does the same thing that Moses did. He leaves it in God's hands. And friends, when you are betrayed, when you are facing troubles, that's the best place for you to leave your feelings and emotions and desires for justice as well. It's so easy for us to act out and to actually, indeed, overreact, uh, driven by the strength and the passion of our emotions. Uh, There's nothing wrong with praying for God to render justice. Uh, I've been betrayed by people before. Everybody has been betrayed by people. Perhaps you've also been brought to the point where all you can say is, you know, I just, I hope, I pray that God just deals with this person justly. I need to remove myself from this situation because my emotions would probably take me too far. It's perfectly acceptable to simply leave it in God's hands. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. Will I? No. Sometimes, especially if I'm emotionally charged up, I won't. And this gives David a sense of relief to just leave it in God's hands as we should expect it to. Let's look at verses 16 to 19. David says, As for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur and He will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them. Even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. We should know that it is never healthy to dwell too long on an enemy especially one who was once a friend and yet chose the road of betrayal. And so it's like seeing the first sunbeam of the day peek over the horizon as David reaches this turning point where he remembers that while friends may 
turn on Him and betray Him, and while our foes may plot and rise up against us, it is God who is always faithful to preserve and sustain His children. He always gives us the grace that we need when we need it. Our greatest comfort in life and death, according to the Heidelberg Confession, is not that we won't have enemies. Our greatest comfort in life and death is not that we won't have friends who end up betraying us. It's that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him. Again, this is still the Heidelberg uh, Confession. Uh, Because I belong, or Catechism. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life, and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That, that is our greatest comfort in life and death. Have you experienced God's grace in that way? Where you can say that? Where you can say what that answer is? I mean, to an extent, I'd say every person on the planet has experienced God's grace to a degree. That's why they're still breathing. But if you have repented and believed savingly on Jesus Christ who bore our every iniquity, that we may be cleansed of every iniquity, how much more have you experienced God's grace? He has sustained you until now. He has delivered you from your greatest trouble, which is yourself and your sin nature. And He has promised the grace to make it through the day. And He has promised that He will be with you until the end of the age. What more could you possibly ask for? Until the day you die. As long as you are living in this world, you will have troubles rising up from time to time but it's better to have trials and tribulations and to be at peace with God than it is to have no troubles in life and yet to be an enemy of God David's faith increases here it rises up that's what faith would would do in a situation like this David has brought his problems to God over and over again. He's prayed. He's persisted. He's prayed. He's persisted. He's prayed. He's persisted. And before God changes David's circumstances, He changes David. He gives David the grace and strength to endure and to trust his problems in God's hands. Do you not know, friends, That God often works not by changing our circumstances, but by changing us. He tests us and strengthens our faith in our trials. He chops away at any confidence that we might have in the flesh. Praise the Lord for that. Because it's not easy for us to learn not to trust our flesh. You think you you can do that when you're at peace with everything around you? Well, you need to see the weakness of your flesh. Because it's when you see the weakness of your flesh that you see the all-encompassing sufficiency of Christ 
sustaining you and giving you the strength to endure. He reminds us of the the countless times prior to the situation we're in when He was faithful to sustain us and provide for our every need before. Will He not do the same again? Of course He will. Now maybe the, the circumstances that you're facing will change or maybe they won't. But if you persist in prayer, if you're persisting in intimate fellowship with God, you need to know that persisting in intimate fellowship with God always changes us. It always changes us. Indeed, we know God's Word is very clear about this. We know that God is causing all things, not just the good times in life, but the hard times too, perhaps the hard times especially, and our time spent praying as well, God's causing all things to work together to make us more like Jesus, which is our highest and greatest good. God promises that. You can test Him on that. You you can cash that check. The funds are in the bank. God's made the promise. He will be faithful to every promise He has made. What a blessing it is to be filled with confidence that God will deal one way or another with our enemies. He will address every instance of injustice. He will address every sin, every wrongdoing. Nothing escapes the notice of Him who never changes. Perfect and undefiled justice will be dealt to those who do not fear God. And so as David considers these things, he thinks once more about his now former friend, the one who has betrayed him, and what awaits him. Let's continue, verses 20 and 21. He says, He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. See how he switches here from they or them to he? Now he's singling in, drawing in on this individual. Earlier, David was grieved as he thought about this individual and and what this person had done against him. But now we see that his tone is changed. David kind of sees things for how they are, and his emotions have, have settled down. He's, he's able to brush the emotions aside for just a moment and to consider the evil act of betrayal for the sin that it is. He seems to almost feel sorry, in a sense here, for his, his former friend as he realizes that the man's biggest problem is ultimately that he's a covenant breaker. And the reason that he's willing to be a covenant breaker, willing to to violate a a covenant, is because he's a sinner. It's just turned him into a hypocrite. He he says one thing, pretends to be one thing, but then he's another. He he, he acts one way for somebody who who loves him and trusts him, but then he's willing behind that person's back to, to stab them. He speaks words of peace while he's arming himself for war. Friends, we need to know that as long as sinful people exist, there will be covenant breakers, there will be hypocrites, there will be betrayers. Sin is everywhere, and it permeates everything that people, including ourselves, it it permeates everything that people do. The question boils down to this. What are the righteous, what are the innocent supposed to do when wrongs are done against them like this? 
How do we respond to betrayal or any kind of evil that's committed against us? David concludes the psalm by giving us the answer. Let's conclude the psalm with verses 22 and 23. David writes, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Of course, this answer is exactly what David has modeled for us throughout this psalm. In fact, Peter actually quotes this part of the psalm at the end of his first epistle where he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now make no mistake about it, this is not just another form of escapism. He's not just trying to avoid his, dealing with his problems. It's not a case of doing nothing about his problems. Casting our cares and anxieties on God isn't escapism at all. In fact, it is a lot of work. It takes diligence. It requires persistence. It means being very intentional. And it enables us to not run from or to, uh, not to avoid our problems, but to stand up and to press on in faith, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in Him who sustains us and gives us the grace to make it through the day. So in, in, this, in these two verses, David gives us three reasons for why we should cast our anxieties upon the Lord as he closes out the psalm. The first reason is when we cast our burdens and anxieties on the Lord, He will sustain us. Cares and, and anxieties have a way of, of weighing us down. The, the emotions can overwhelm us to the point where we feel like we just can't move forward. But God will not only carry our burdens, but He will also carry us. Secondly, when we cast our anxieties and cares on the Lord, He will not allow us to be shaken. I love the way that Isaac Watts poetically paraphrased this. He wrote, I cast my burdens on the Lord. The Lord sustains them all. My courage rests upon His Word that saints shall never fall. We will not be brought to destruction or to death until the Lord says so. Nothing can end our lives before the time that He has ordained for us to go home. As better theologians than me have once said. We are immortal until the time that the Lord has ordained for us to end this life. Of course, we all know that any plot or conspiracy to kill David or to overthrow David failed. There were uprisings against David throughout his kingship, but none that led to the end of his reign as Israel's king. Third, when we cast our cares and anxieties on the Lord, we're free to know that God will deal justly with the wicked. And that's a comfort. Yes, the wicked may prosper for a time. Look at the headlines every day, right? But God has promised that every evil thought, word, and deed will be dealt with. As we read elsewhere in Scripture, Deuteronomy 32.35, God declares in very clear language, vengeance is mine, and retribution, in due time their foot will slip. God will ensure it. 
Our, our duty isn't to pay back evil for evil, therefore. In the words of Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, our instruction is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, if you join with evil men in doing evil for evil, you are not going to put burning coals on their head because that's what they're expecting. What's really going to torment them is if you show them the love of Christ that he that Christ has extended toward you. The question is then, who can find comfort in the fact that God will deal justly with the wicked? Because all of us have sinned, and justice is this, the wage of sin is death. That's perfect justice. God's the one who defines justice because God is perfectly just. So how is there any comfort in justice, true justice, being served? It's true that God will punish every single sin. And so if our sin is on us, we will be the ones punished in hell for eternity. But God loves to show mercy and so He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life of perfect obedience and submission to His will and to die the death that all who repent and believe on Him deserves. When a person believes savingly, Christ's righteousness is credited, it is transferred, it's imputed to that person, and Christ pays the debt of that person's sin so that God would be both just and the justifier of the one who believes on Jesus Christ. So who finds comfort in knowing that God's perfect, unmitigated justice will be served? Only those who have seen justice served on their behalf on Calvary. Only those who are covered by God's mercy in Christ our mercy seat. And so when all is said and done, David's final statement is simply this, but I will trust in you. But I will trust in you. Of course, that you being God. Can you say the same? Can you learn to say the same? Let me say this. The only thing that will test whether you can is trials. So, in one sense, our trials become blessings. If you are in Christ Jesus, know this. Your enemies can go ahead and plot and do whatever. They can intend all these troubles against you for evil. But in this way, God intends them for good. By bringing your troubles to God and by persisting in prayer, your troubles ultimately actually end up being a blessing to you because you end up gaining a strengthened faith a renewed confidence in God and the peace of knowing that God really is with you and really is for you. And to not just know that in your, in your intellect, but to know it in your experience. Something that next time somebody gives you trouble, you can look back on and remember God's faithfulness. And when you persist in prayer, God will certainly use your troubles and your trials to bless you. He will use them 
for your greatest good. And you can take that promise to the bank. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Your word is like warmth on a freezing day. And your grace, your grace is greater than we can imagine. And so we thank you for your grace in Christ. The grace that drew us to Christ, the the grace that sustains us in Christ. The grace that gets us through difficult times. We pray, O Lord, that we would know this grace, not only intellectually, but by our experience. Teach us to be wise and teach us to persist in bringing our troubles to you that our trials may ultimately end up to be blessings. And so with that in mind, help us to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, knowing that by doing so, not only is not only is that like putting burning coals on their heads, but your grace is put on display in our lives in the presence of those who need your grace. So teach us to live our lives in a way that glorifies you and teach us to deal with troubles in a way that strengthens us and glorifies Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.